Support for Industry Focus comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. You're confident when it comes to your work and life. Rocket Mortgage gives you that same confidence when it comes to refinancing your existing home mortgage or buying a home. It lets you understand all the details so you can be confident that you're getting the right mortgage for you. Go to quickenloans.com slash fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Tuesday, April 10th, and I'm your host, Vincent Shen. I'm really looking forward to the discussion that we have lined up for you. So the goal recently uh, for this show was to line up another company that we could kind of debut coverage for here on Industry Focus. And so far this year, we've really mostly focused on small or mid-cap names like Pool Corporation, uh, Thor Industries, and then some of the recent IPOs in the consumer retail sector. But our focus today will actually be a larger enterprise, and that company is Estee Lauder. So besides being a huge name in the cosmetics industry with a market cap over $50 billion, the stock has enjoyed an incredible run in the past year. The shares are up almost 80%, and that makes Estee Lauder one of the best performers in the consumer retail space. Joining me today via Skype is senior Motley Fool contributor, Asit Sharma. Welcome uh, welcome back, man. Thanks a lot. I'm so excited to be here. I am psyched about this topic. Yeah, sure. So this popped up uh, on my radar uh, after doing a screen, kind of just looking at what companies, at least in terms of their stock performance, have been really uh, leading the pack in the past year. And obviously, when you have companies that are uh, gaining you know fifty plus percent, if not triple digits, usually smaller entities, but in this case, you know you have this fifty billion dollar company has seen an eighty percent gain in the past year. And honestly, the timing of the discussion has been pretty appropriate. And my wife has actually been encouraging me recently to adopt a more comprehensive skincare regimen. And then boom, just like that, Estee Lauder kind of pops up on our radar, so I thought that was kind of funny. Um, so the co- Estee Lauder companies, ticker EL, uh, they manufacture and sell a large variety of skincare products, makeup, fragrances, and hair care products. So in the trailing 12-month period, the company generated about $13 billion in total sales across its very large brand portfolio, and that includes brands that it personally owns and operates, and then also um, some designer labels that it licenses with. So Asit, if you're looking to give someone new to Estee Lauder, a kind of 10,000-foot view of the company, what do people need to know about the business? One of the most important things to know about this business, Vince, is that it was founded by Esty, pronounced Esty, not Esty, Esty and Joseph Lauder in 1946. Um, this is so important to the company because the personality of Esty Lauder has permeated the rest of the history of the company, and we'll talk about that as we uh, go on. It uh, sells in basically five categories. Skincare is the biggest category, second biggest category, sorry, um, that made up about 38% of revenue in the last year. Uh, makeup, which was about 43% of revenue, fragrance at 14%, hair care at 5%, and other at 1%. Uh, this company conceives of and it markets itself as a prestige beauty house. And that means that most of its products are going to tend towards that higher end of this spectrum, towards the luxury um, brand designation. But it does offer a good number of entry-level or mass-market products. Mm -hmm. I'm going to read, listeners, some of the brands that Estee Lauder manufactures. These include its eponymous brand, Estee Lauder, Avita, Bobby Brown, La Mer, Rodin, Origins, Clinique, 
Aramis, and many other names that you would recognize. But the company also licenses uh, fragrances and some cosmetics for, uh, again, extremely well-known names such as Tommy Hilfiger, Donnie Car- Donna Karen, um, DKNY, Michael Kors, and Tom Ford. Yep. So we see that the company has its fingers across the spectrum of brands in skincare, makeup, and fragrance primarily. The marketing philosophy follows Estee Lauder's original idea of personalized, high-touch interactions with customers. Estee Lauder used to travel tirelessly to sell her product, and she herself would apply makeup to customers coming into department stores. really was sort of a shoe leather marketer from the very beginning. And the company has maintained this aspect of marketing, even through technology today, it has interactive ways to show applications of its product, um, usage demonstrations, uh, et cetera. So this is something very important about the company. When you buy their product, you have a pretty good chance of having encountered it through a human being, either in a department store, perhaps in an airport, uh, at a duty-free shop. They're really high on this one-to-one marketing uh, strategy. Yeah, and I think that uh, if, if you just let me jump in really quick there, I think uh, it's hard to kind of overstate how important that uh, touch, that one touch, and that prestige element is for the company um, across retail right now. Um, given how much the competitive environment is changing, and barring a major economic downturn, which we'll talk about in terms of risks later on, you know these luxury companies um, are generally outperforming. Um, you see this in high-end shopping malls, and how aspirational brands have often managed to stand out. And I think with skincare and cosmetics, it's really no different. So. These prestige brands are outgrowing the mass market ones, and they've been doing so pretty consistently for a few years now. And Estee Lauder has employed this prestige-first strategy for almost a decade. And last month at a retail industry conference, uh, the CEO, Fabrizio Freda, he actually went into detail. Uh, I think it's really interesting here about why the high-end business is outperforming. The way he describes it specifically for skincare is that number one, uh, the different differentiator, uh, as obvious as it may seem, is product quality because that tends to lead to customer loyalty and the idea that customers will only go back and buy a second time the products that they enjoy using and that they find to be effective in terms of their skincare and their cosmetics. And then number two, another differentiator is innovation because in this industry, meeting people's needs is already kind of a given. And so there's not as much that's fresh in meeting people's needs. But if you're able to surprise your customers with unique products, that's much more likely to win them over. And then number three, the prestige world offers a more kind of compelling overall experience. And you mentioned some of these aspects, Asset. And so between the product quality, the product innovation that I just mentioned, but then the education element for customers who go into some of the brick-and-mortar stores, for example, that SEL manages through its various brands, and then also department stores, for example, um, having that experience interacting with the brands at a makeup counter and in store is very powerful. And the interesting thing is you know, that it was all, he kind of gave that all in the context of more developed markets like the United States and Europe, but then he ties that to emerging markets too because these three principles are still in play, but then prestige also has the additional benefit in developing markets of being aspirational. And that's very relevant, obviously, when you have a growing middle class and with uh, consumers in its very fast-growing regions like Asia. Um, something else that uh, I think it's important to 
that's really important for this business in terms of how they sell through their products is their sales channels, their distribution model, um, because they have a, you know, a variety of kind of different storefronts, their online business. What's the story there, Asit? Yeah, the company has uh, a really interesting uh, division of channels. So um, the first is primarily department stores. These are specialty retailers uh, as well. And, and this is straight quote from the company, upscale perfumeries and pharmacies and prestige salons and spas. So again, we're looking at that gamut of uh, luxury, high-end luxury, premium, all the things that you mentioned, Vince, which in my mind always pop, translate into margin, profit margin. Yeah, exactly. Um, they're also in freestanding stores. They own about uh, 1,400 freestanding stores and about 500 additional stores are operated by third parties. They operate those under four labels, MAC or um, MAC. This is a Canadian company, which the company acquired in the 1990s. Joe Malone, London, Bobby Brown, which many listeners would be familiar with, and Evita, mm -hmm. also a very common name. Um, so this distribution channel, as, as you said, Vince, it's heavy into brick and mortar, but the company is also uh, really into online sales. It's got a burgeoning e-commerce channel. Uh, it has about 1,400 different e-commerce and mobile sites. Um, and one thing that I'm really interested in is we talked about Hudson Retail um, a while ago, a few weeks ago, Vince, and uh, that it leases space, retail space uh, in airports. Yes. Uh, this is something that uh, has been a boon to the company in terms of what it calls travel retail. So those uh, folks in China who are driving up sales in that market are also great travelers and they spend money in the places they visit. Uh, there are a few companies of Estee Lauder sides that are quite as good at pulling dollars or, or pulling yuan rather out of customers uh, as they work their way through airports and then travel in the countries um, that their final destination is. So this is just an overview of how widespread and how many distribution channels this company has. Yeah, and I think uh, you know, the story that management really paints regarding its recent growth and strength, it's all about taking a very holistic approach to how they leverage you know, their very broad product and brand portfolio and then how they push into these different channels and you know, geographic markets, uh, online, uh, their kind of online channels, um, and then also traditional outlets like department stores, specialty retailers. And something else uh, I wanted to cover too uh, that I think has shaped a little bit of their recent strategy. So about two years ago, the company implemented a bit of a restructuring effort that they uh, called Leading Beauty Forward. And with that, they're kind of taking efforts to change their marketing and adapt them to a more digital focus, given how important that is, obviously, uh, you know, that comes up all the time on the show. And ultimately, they want to better connect with their customers. A big part of that, for example, is social media and how social media influencers can be a key part of how they connect with younger consumers, since that demographic tends to find uh, you know, the social media medium to be the most compelling. And then beyond that, the company has also worked towards uh, a more nimble supply chain, for example. So something that was very um, pronounced in terms of the effect 
uh, with this uh, restructuring is the time to market for products. So historically, it took the company about 18 months to bring an idea to market. Now it's just 12 months for bigger ideas, while small changes can happen as quickly as just five or six months. And then the restructuring has also helped, uh, for example, lower their inventory levels, uh, align some of the functions at the company so they can, can support all those different sales channels that we've mentioned. And overall, uh, in terms of quantitative value, you know, the uh, management estimates an annual benefit of about $300 million from leading beauty forward. So pretty powerful. And last thing here, before we get to our the next part of our discussion, I think is very important in terms of the context of how this business works and how it's grown over the years is in terms of M&A activity for the company. So the company engages in pretty uh, is is pretty regular buyer, and uh, they are often looking for brands that they can kind of roll into the portfolio, fill in certain niches that they don't they maybe feel are undercover and offer a good return on investment. I think in the past few years they've acquired something like six or seven smaller brands. Um, but uh, what are some of the details there, Asit? Sure. So just a reminder: the company went public in 1995. And that was also the year that it made its first acquisition. Up until that time, for over 50 years, Estee Lauder had developed brands in-house. And there was an individual cosmeticist who was like a cult figure in New York City in the mid-90s. Her products were sold in Neiman Marcus, none other than Bobby Brown, who I just mentioned a few minutes ago. That was the company's first acquisition in 95. That brand is now sold in 60 countries. So the model is acquire these brands and then uh, obviously expand them. Mm-hmm. And I went back and looked at the history since then. The company is, has a pretty regular cadence of acquiring a major brand every two years. Um, but in recent years, that has really ticked up. Just to read you a few, um, Estee Lauder bought Hollywood skincare brand Glam Glow in January of 2015, Fragrance House Killian in February of 2016, Becca, which is a makeup brand, November 2016, and Too Faced, that's spelled T-O-O, Too Faced, in December of 2016. Now, the company has a June 30th year end, so those last two acquisitions actually came in the most previous fiscal year, and that speaks to um, what Vince was saying, that the company sort of ramped up its acquisitions in the past few years. But I think that this emphasis Estee Lauder has on technology, innovation, um, as you mentioned, Vince, research and development spends about $120 million a year in research and development. I think that lends itself to buying these brands, wrapping them in, and then um, doing brand extensions, making new products, testing them out, offering new SKUs in these varieties of markets. And oftentimes, they will take a brand from the U.S. and transplant it, sort of the lift and shift model, into Asia with a few modifications, and that's proved very successful for them. Absolutely. All right. So next up, we're going to look at their most recent uh, financial performance, some of the things that are driving this very robust performance, and wrap with our usual look at things like their future opportunities, some of the risks of the business and valuation. Support for Industry Focus comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Chances are you're confident when it comes to your work, your hobbies, and your life. Rocket Mortgage gives you that same level of confidence when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. With Rocket Mortgage, you can apply simply and understand fully so you can mortgage confidently. To get started, go to quickenloans.com slash bool, equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org number 3030. Okay, so 
let's dedicate a couple minutes now to uh, their most recent uh, results uh, for this part of the show. Uh, Estee Lauder has reported the, I think, the first half of its current fiscal year so far, and the highlights seem to be an accelerating top line and earnings growth in double digits. And then their guidance, I believe, has already been revised upward more than once uh, uh, so far in this fiscal year. So pretty impressive. But what are we uh, looking at exactly here? So the financial model for Estee Lauder is really intriguing to me. Uh, Vince, you mentioned trailing 12-month sales about $13 billion. Mm-hmm. In the last uh, fiscal year, the company sold closer to $12 billion. If you look at their just reporting year, um, extremely high gross margins for Estee Lauder. They tend to run at around 80% quarter after quarter. So that's not necessarily a indication, an indication of um, how profitable its manufacturing processes, that is an indication of these high price points they can sell its product at. Um, to accompany that high gross margin is a high general um, and administrative cost and a high selling cost. So that takes up about 60% of each sales dollars. If we look at the close to $12 billion that the company sold in the last um, fiscal year, it made a gross profit of $9.4 billion. Now, out of that $9.4 billion, Estee Lauder spent nearly $3 billion bucks in advertising, merchandising, sampling, promotion, and product development. So you can see what it's doing. It's selling product at a very high price point, that aspirational price point, and it's taking some of that gross profit and just pouring it into getting the product in front of people. Um, and what this generates at the end of the day is a pretty reliable 10% net profit margin year after year. So it's a stable business with a very stable structure and how it makes each sales dollar and each profit dollar. And for the past few years, it's been growing sales at a good clip, four to five percent. Now what's happened in the last year is is pretty amazing. Cumulative revenue growth in the first six months of this fiscal year uh, are up 16% to $7 billion. So that is a, a leap, really, from what the company has, has historically been able to generate. It's had to revise its full-year forecast twice already this year. Um, the company now expects full-year growth for this year of 10% to 11%. That's because it will have a weaker third and fourth quarter this year. Um, I wanted to flip it back to you, Vince, um, to talk about, uh, let's talk about this growth and, and what's driving it. Yeah, sure. And I'll add also, if you want to look for investors who want to look at a little bit, a little bit uh, further, um, management has mentioned that in the next three years, they expect revenue to grow six to eight percent annually, while earnings continue to go up double digits. And they also think that their profitability can continue to improve with their operating margin for example, expanding about half a percentage point each year. Um, so mentioned does offer kind of a little bit further outlook in terms of some of that guidance. Um, but the big things uh, that we wanted to focus on are the sources of that strength. And uh, company management has pointed to several specific elements. Uh, the ones that they seem to call out the most clearly are China. And that is what the CEO believes is the largest opportunity long-term. And then there is travel retail, which we've touched on briefly, uh, the online channel, and then the Estee Lauder brand, the namesake brand itself. Um, So let's look at China first. So uh, growth in that region has easily been in the double digits. And what they've seen is that young consumers there 
are very, very passionate about uh, prestige beauty, which obviously fits beautifully with this company's focus and business model. And the thing is, uh, Chinese consumers are transitioning uh, from what was previously a focus on skincare to also uh, some of the other categories that the company offers, like makeup and fragrances. So, uh, you know, the CEO kind of describes it as going from tapping just one engine in the Estee Lauder business to a multi-engine kind of model for this market. And in the last quarter or so, that's their fiscal 2018 second quarter, they said the China Chinese makeup business doubled and the online business in that region also doubled and now it's over 25% of sales uh, as of that second quarter. And otherwise, uh, they are also working to balance kind of a physical and digital footprint in that region. Um, For example, the company will use data from their online purchases to determine which cities to enter. But the namesake, S.A. Louder brand already has a physical presence in 170 of the higher traffic cities in China, but there's still 600 more that they can kind of reach online and use that data to determine where else to expand to. And the big thing in terms of consumer habits that I thought it would be uh, interesting to point out, it was really surprising, is Chinese consumers, they'll often use up to seven or eight skincare products per day. So as the company builds customer loyalty that they further penetrate into the available product categories um, in that market, the growth kind of accelerates even more quickly because of that that kind of usage. Um, so really a big opportunity there for the company. And something else that uh, an, another one of the kind of pillars is with their online sales. Um, what is the company kind of seeing there and, and uh, what uh, what stood out to you, Asit? The company has this unusual savvy ability to go into a region and figure out what is the best way to market itself online. You mentioned social media influencers, Vince, mm-hmm. that's very big for Estee Lauder. Their mobile-based sales in the most recent quarter rose 70%. Uh, and one of the things that distinguishes Estee Lauder from some of the other huge conglomerates that I look at is that they really understand where and when to sell. I mean, for example, there's a huge holiday in China called Singles Day, which happens every November 11th. And this, the better companies in China those that are really great at marketing fully take advantage of this holiday. And that's something that Estee Lauder has really jumped on. They also understand that it's important to be on places like Tmall, which is an online um, shopping venue in China. And they're really selling ferociously through that channel. Um, One of the things that you see that's the uh, confluence of both of these trends is this uh, travel retail because often consumers will learn about some of these aspirational brands within the company's portfolio within an area and through like an online uh, channel and then when they travel they can buy those products which aren't always available in specific regions in china you know and vince as you mentioned they're in 170 um, cities physically they sell to another 480 cities in China online. Yep. So if you're a Chinese consumer, you may not have any retail presence that you can physically go to, but you learn about these brands. And when you travel to other Chinese cities or travel abroad, that's the point at which you make that purchase. There's one more thing that I found very insightful about the way that the company's been able to sustain its growth, and that is it pays attention to its flagship brands. The brands of um, Estee Lauder, Clinique and MAC 
together as a group grew by double digits in this fiscal second quarter. And that is really impressive because the Estee Lauder brand, of course, has been around for decades. I wanted to read um, one thing that the CEO Fabrizio Freda said in his most recent uh, earnings call, which speaks to this. Estee Lauder is a prime example of a heritage brand benefiting from continued consumer loyalty as it successfully innovates around its core products and engages customers, consumers in modern ways. Although we continue to face strong competition or trial from upstart and indie brands, we believe many of them won't have the staying power and repurchase rate of our established brands and core product. Trial is often an investment. So at the end there, he's speaking about uh, this idea of getting product into the hands of consumers often free. So they try it and then continue to buy it. But the, the amount of investment the company makes in its leading brands is impressive. And the fact that they're able to keep growing these flagship brands, um, which are older than I am, in the double digits is, is simply amazing. Yep. Okay. So we have a few more minutes here. I, I want to make sure we leave enough time to talk about um, these last couple topics. So one thing to keep in mind is that, you know, that growth in, uh, Asia, for example, very strong, other developing markets, very strong, but, uh, us home market is somewhere where they're kind of seeing mixed results still and something to keep in mind in terms of how they're going to approach that. Because traditionally, uh, SA Louder has been very reliant on department stores. Um, and obviously there's a lot of changes, there's struggles going on in terms of, uh, department stores brick and mortar operations. So given some of those challenges, the companies kind of had to rethink how it can access consumers and meet their needs, uh, basically where consumers now choose to shop and how that's changing. So for example, that might mean increasing offerings with certain specialty retailers like Ulta and Sephora. And also they're trying to improve and work with department stores to imp uh, improve that in-store experience and support their efforts to grow their online and digital businesses too because that's often a an area of strength for these otherwise for these companies that are of otherwise experiencing a lot of weakness and something else again uh, company mentioned that they're kind of I think they said they're in like 20% into their efforts of taking advantage of some of the data and analytics they're getting from their consumers in that they're, they've are they managed to gather it from a lot of their online sites um, in terms of in partnership with some of these other retailers that they sell through. But the remaining 80% is in terms of how they can use that data to optimize the way they sell. Um, uh, how they kind of gauge the demand of what consumers are looking for. But they are uh, testing that and using that. And an interesting tidbit is how they're noticing how, for example, differences between the Boston and California markets might actually end up big, being bigger than the differences between the California and Japan markets. So kind of being able to fine tune um, their offerings for each region is going to be really important for the company going forward. And uh, I think something else bigger picture in terms of risk for this company, of course, when you are a you know prestige brand, you're operating at kind of luxury levels. Uh, the risk of an econ economic downturn is always there. What do you think about that? Yeah, certainly. Um, one of the things that we've seen is during recessions, the discretionary companies get hit. And this is one of those um, very interesting phenomenon going in retail traffic in the United States. Vince, as you mentioned, uh, or something that the company discloses in its annual report, 
uh, is its largest customer, which is Macy's. Macy's accounted for 8% of fiscal 2017 sales. So you can sort of trace uh, that decline in physical foot traffic and the way Macy's and its uh, peer companies have been hit with the fact that U.S. sales only grew at a 5% rate uh, in this most recent quarter, where we were talking about Europe, the Middle East, uh, growing um, double digits, and of course, Asia Pacific growing 33% plus. So the company has to find ways to offset that slowing foot traffic. Data and analytics obviously could be key to doing that if uh, this experience of investing in data and analytics is going to be anything like the company's investments in technology and personalization have have been for them, I think that they probably can offset uh, more foot traffic losses. And it's good that at least this North American traffic um, hasn't caused revenue losses yet. They're still creeping along at a positive rate. So I think that the company will be able to, uh, if the economy stays where it is at this sort of slow growth rate, we'll be able to offset declines. Now, if we go into uh, a slower phase of economic growth, obviously, then the company could get hit, which leads us into this next last topic, Vince, valuation. Yeah, absolutely. Stock's gotten a little pricey um, over the past 12 months. Yeah. So with the the a lot of the strength that we've spoken to with this business, again, stock shares being up about 80% in the past year, um, The it's definitely approaching a point where, hey, that... Uh, that growth that it's seen it's on top line, the double digit growth that it's seen its earnings, it's very enviable, obviously, for this company. And it seems like a lot of investors are jumping in trying to get a piece of that growth. And I believe, in terms of its forward price to earnings, for example, it is at very high uh, levels compared to its historical averages. And so there's definitely a premium going on there. What do you think? Yeah. So um, this company is trading at about. 35 times forward earnings, and that's 10 percentage points higher than uh, its average over the last 10 years, which is about 25 times forward earnings. Just to compare it to some of the companies that uh, Estee Lauder lists as competitors, uh, LVMH, that's Louis Vuitton, Moet Hennessy, uh, the famous luxury brand, trades at a P.E. ratio, 4 P.E. ratio of 25. Cody uh, trades also at a Ford P.E. ratio of 25. And then two companies, which are broader consumer conglomerates, which nonetheless each has divisions which provide a lot of competition to Estee Lauder. Um, Procter & Gamble trades at a Ford P.E. ratio of 19, and Unilever trades at a Ford P.E. ratio of 20. So you see all four of these great companies are cheaper right now relative uh, to Estee Lauder. And that's the one thing which calls my enthusiasm a bit. I looked at the balance sheet, very solid, clean balance sheet. Um, obviously, the company has the revenue side of the equation figured out. But if you look at the actual trailing 12-month uh, PE ratio of this company, it's past 50. And on the chart, it looks like a like a Michael Jordan vertical leap, standing <laughs> vertical leap. You, just, you, look, you, you pull it back a year and you just see it take off where, as Vince mentioned, the stock moved this 80% over the last 12 months. So my personal opinion, um, if you're interested in, in investing in Estee Lauder, maybe wait for a pullback. I rarely say that with a great company. I always feel that over time, 
it truly doesn't matter. But here, this may be a case of it's gotten a little bit ahead of itself. And I'm curious, Vince, what are your thoughts? Do you think it might have um, just gotten just a bit ahead of where its normalized price should be? I think in, uh, in doing research for this, you know, I wasn't previously very familiar with the company. I, I've been a little bit, uh, I've been really won over, I think, by the story. And I really, uh, in reading uh, kind of multiple calls and looking at the presentations with management, I think the way they're approaching this, uh, the industry, their growth, uh, their vision for how things will continue is really strong and compelling. Um, and I generally do favor these companies that uh, focus on these higher price points, this prestige level as being stronger and a little bit more uh, robust in terms of the consumer demand and how they resonate with customers. So I'm with you in that, but in, with keeping in mind, um, you know, long-term, this story is really important. I'd say if you're going to, because the stock is trading at a premium right now, it's more expensive level. If you're interested in getting in, you know, kind of take a small position and then over time kind of uh, get into your position that way. That's always something that we recommend with any stock that you invest in, not to dump everything you're planning to put into the stock at one time. And you can kind of ride out any uh, major jumps over a period of six months or a year, for example, that way. Agreed. My last point, uh, if you're interested in investing, Read the conference call transcripts. There's so much going on and so many strategies that Estee Lauder is uh, employing. We really couldn't do it justice in this brief podcast, but it's, if you like the company, it's quite interesting. Take a read through those. Um, I think you'll be rewarded. All right. Thank you very much, Asit. Uh, that's all the time we have for today. Um, we will definitely follow up uh, on this company uh, probably later this year, see how they're going in terms of their kind of bullish rally and then how some of those various growth initiatives are panning out. Uh, people on the program may own companies discussed in the show and then Molly Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear during the program. Thanks again for listening. Full on. 